Good morning. Well, I am Eric, one of the pastors here. If you would, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 4, and if you need a Bible, raise up your hand, and one of our ushers will get one to you just as quickly as we can get one across. Just leave your hand up un- uncomfortably long, and they will get you one eventually. Well, we are in week three of our series called The Takeover, The King's Entrance, and in the first two weeks, we got to see that this new kingdom we're hearing about is nothing that we would have expected, nothing we would have come up with on our own. In week one, Pastor Ty walked us through the start of, John, of chapter three as John the Baptist got ready for the way of Jesus. And then Pastor Micah took us through that crowning moment of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, his baptism, which culminates when a voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved son, I delight in him. So it's on the heels of that majestic moment when we turn to chapter 4 in Matthew as Jesus immediately faces confrontation and at the same time an enemy. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4 together. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But he answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and immediately angels came and began to serve him. It's all about Jesus. Everything is all about Jesus. Whether we admit it or not, our very lives will rise and fall on the person, on the work, on the obedience of Jesus. And even if you don't want it to be true, you want to run and hide from that reality, at some point in time, it's going to get to you. And this is why the Bible goes to extreme lengths to detail so much of Jesus, like his lineage, all the way through the nation of Israel all the efforts to record all the prophecies about Jesus and then to record all the eyewitnesses about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. But sometimes we still get doubts about Jesus and that's okay. And as we'll see this morning, the Apostle Paul, who we know now as the Apostle Paul, he believed it was all about Jesus. But at some point in time, Paul was not convinced that it was all about Jesus. In fact, for the first part of his life, he worked against Jesus. He worked against the cause of Christ. He oppressed people that came to be known as Christians, little Christs. That is until he was mowed down by the reality of Jesus and could no longer deny it, that Jesus wears the crown. He is a king. 
And in 1 Corinthians 15, he spends almost the whole chapter going to, to incredible lengths to fill it with eyewitness details on a man who, it appears, rose from the dead. In verse 14 of that chapter, Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation, and so is your faith. Because it's all about Jesus. If he isn't truly who he says he is, my preaching, Paul's preaching, and our faith is pointless. In verse 17, Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. It's all about Jesus. If he isn't God, if he didn't truly rise from the dead, our faith is pointless. In verse 19, Paul writes, If we've put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone because it's all about Jesus. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if he didn't conquer sin and death, then there's no hope for you and I to be forgiven. Paul says the world should take pity on Christians if that were the case. And before the apostle Paul, there was the prophet Isaiah. And almost seven years, almost 700 years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah proclaimed that it's all about Jesus, that our salvation, our forgiveness, our redemption rests on Jesus. And as we read this passage, I want you to think through this, consider the result, consider the impact, consider the ramifications if Jesus doesn't follow the Father's plan. If Jesus fails, if he, if he doesn't do what's necessary to become the true king, where would that leave us? So if you want to, you can follow along in your Bible, Isaiah 53, or look at the screens. And we read, yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, we have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. Although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. It's all about Jesus, fellow rebels. Christianity rises and falls on Jesus. Our failures, our sins, our rebellion will either condemn us or Jesus can take them. Many of you know this in the room already. You know who else already knew this? The enemy. 
And from the beginning, Satan has rebelled against the plan of God. And this passage is no different. Our passage today is going to leave behind in the rearview mirror the joy and the delight we read about last week. And here, we're going to read of Jesus being led by the Spirit of God directly into a fire, directly into a trial. Jesus, we heard about, was anointed in the Jordan by the Spirit as God's servant king. And now, the channel changes and Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to undergo a head-on barrage from Satan. This king is enduring a trial. Chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This, the fact that Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted can really mess with the minds of some people. But we need to keep in mind that God has a desire to, to do, to take with what Satan intends for evil and to do good with it. The Father's going to use this testing to strengthen the Son for his role as the Messiah, and he's going to need this strength because Satan has a very terrible plan in his mind. Satan desires to sabotage God's plan to rescue humanity. Satan wants to provoke Jesus to sin, to provoke him to rebel against the Father and disqualify him to be what we desperately need, a sinless Savior. And a question that can come up when we discuss this is, is the Spirit guiding Jesus into a tough situation? Why would the Spirit want Jesus to be tempted? So keep this in mind. The word temptation we read in many English translations from the Greek could better be translated as testing, coming from the original Greek word. So the Spirit, yes, is ushering Jesus towards a situation of testing. But know this, that from James 1.13, we know God will not tempt anyone to sin, But he will use opportunities to test our character and in that shape us to be like him. And here we see Jesus in the wilderness and his testing begins with an exercise of faith and prayer. In verse 2, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. It's one of the biggest understatements in the Bible. And the skeptic in you or me might think, is that really possible? Come on. I mean, I know there's a devil talking and they're, they're going into the desert and on top, but, but can a person really fast 40 days? But if you just type that into your phone, Google that, you'll find out that 40 days is actually kind of the limit of human ability without totally doing irreparable damage. But Jesus wasn't about a protest and he wasn't about getting healthy He was about, this fast was about a laser focus on preparing for what was to come. This weekend, some of our youth were at a conference in Costa Mesa on learning how to present solid evidence for the faith that we believe. One of the speakers we had revealed to us that he'd spent almost 10 years in sexual sin while being a drug dealer. (laughs) And he told us that his mother, for those 10 years, fasted and prayed for him every Monday. And at one point in time, he was so far gone in his life of sin that she spent one 39-day segment fasting for him. So if that little tiny Asian mom can do it, it can be done because some people are so overwhelmed and they so want to commit themselves to God's way that they commit themselves to that. Fasting is about serious commitment to the work of God. And it's also about setting things right because what we're going to see here is that Jesus' 40-day fast 
lines up with the children of Israel and their 40-year wandering in Israel. In Deuteronomy 8.2, we read, Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness, so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So for 40 years, God tests his people in the wilderness. And for 40 years, if you've gone through the Old Testament, they fail. Listen to Hosea's lament. Hosea chapter 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they departed from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Now Jesus finds himself in a similar situation. 40 days instead of 40 years. And as Israel's representative and then soon to be ours, instead of failing, instead of defeat, he will triumph over sin and he's going to stay faithful to the Father in spite of the agony of hunger. Each time Jesus is challenged by Satan, he quotes from Deuteronomy. And what he's doing is pointing out that what Israel failed to do in the past, he will successfully do. So keep this in mind, that Jesus is the one who successfully completes what you and I or Israel never could because of our sin. So Jesus gets a challenge from Satan that parallels the challenge that the children of Israel had as they complained about food, as they demanded that God prove that he's with them and that they turn from idol worship instead of worshiping God alone. We're going to see that Jesus will be the sinless one who can give to us the righteousness we need that we don't have. So our first test we'll look at. Verse 3, Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But he answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, approaching someone who hasn't eaten in 40 days and wafting a fresh Krispy Kreme or some fresh pretzel bread or banana bread, if that's your pleasure, wafting that under the, that person's nose is a pretty devilish thing to do. And Satan does it by means of challenging the Son of God to prove his identity as the Son of God by disobeying God, by being unfaithful to the commitment to fast. And, and that's just like all sin or every temptation that you and I can face and that it, it promises what it can't deliver. It offers the impossible. And Satan is going to tempt Jesus to use his divinity, his godness, to make fasting easier. And Satan's going to twist reality to tell Jesus, just make yourself some bread to eat while you fast in devotion to the Father. Well, Jesus triumphs in this moment he passes this first test and he quotes Deuteronomy 3 back to Satan saying, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. D.A. Carson said it like this, Israel demanded its bread, but died in the wilderness. Jesus denied himself bread, retained his righteousness, and lived by faithful to submission to God's word. Whining and whining, the children of Israel roamed the desert for 40 years, demanding bread. Jesus 
alternatively, stays faithful to the Father even while desperately hungry. Because Jesus is committed to being right with God. In verse 15 of chapter 3, we read that he is committed to fulfilling all righteousness. And that's what you and I need to remember, that you and I are going to find the abundant life that Jesus promised when we are committed to God's righteousness, no matter what, no matter how we feel, no matter how popular. And that's going to be true for Israel for Jesus, for you and I today, that our true provision, what we need most to survive, to fill us, to satisfy us, is God's truth, his words. This is how we'll know what God wants from us. This is how we'll know the path that righteousness follows. This is how we know when we're being lied to or when we're lying to ourselves or when we're looking for an easy way around God's law or an easy path through a trial. Christ followers, if you are one, they must be relentlessly committed to the words of God and and don't fast from his words and wait for Sunday to be spoon-fed by church. Feed yourself. In the second test, we read in verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And the devil's second test was designed to be more of a public one. And the devil is essentially saying to Jesus, okay, that one, first one didn't didn't work. Let's try this again. Prove to me that you're the son of God. And since we're about 300 feet off the floor of the Kidron Valley, take a leap skydive for glory without a parachute. Because after all, Jesus, Psalm 91 says that the angels will catch you. They won't let you touch the ground. And just think of the show. Think of all the Instagram followers you'll, you'll get. Think of all the crowds. Think of the love you'll get. Come on, Jesus, prove to me that you are the Son of God. And Satan rips Psalm 91 out of context to try to twist Jesus into skipping the Father's plan. Because the Father's plan was not showy at all from one angle. It involved obedience, suffering, humility, obscurity, dealing with the sick, the lame, the castaways, and proclaiming truth to people who didn't want to hear it. And in this second test, Jesus triumphs. He passes this test, and in verse 7, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, saying, do not test the Lord your God. That's a no-no. Jesus stayed faithful to the fact that there are no shortcuts to sanctification. He said no to twisting the Father's arm to change his plan. No matter what, Jesus knew he needed to follow God's plan no matter how boring, no matter how painful, no matter how unexciting, no matter how unsatisfying. Jesus stayed faithful. And following that plan brings life when we follow it. You and I need that. In Exodus 17, the children of Israel tried to twist God's arm to prove that he was really with them because they looked around at their circumstances And they looked around and said, well, we are thirsty, 
we're out in the desert, we don't like life the way that it is, and obviously God's abandoned us. And you and I can make that same mistake by looking at some dark parts of our lives, some painful parts of our lives, and think, well, since it's not the way I want it, God must have abandoned me too. And maybe you'll end up even trying to bargain with God, saying, God, if you just fix this part of my life, if you just heal my child, if you just give me that job I need, if you finally give me a spouse, if you, if you do this, then, then, then I'll follow you. But in Jesus' triumph here, we see that he didn't try to attempt to force God's hand to prove anything. Jesus quietly trusted God's plan, doesn't try to change it or sidestep it. He just obeys it. Two commentators, Davies and Allison, wrote this. Jesus didn't turn stones into bread, nor did he force God to send angels. Instead, he trusted the Father in heaven, and all his needs were met. In time, it was given to him, and angels appeared. As God once miraculously gave Israel manna in the desert, so now he feeds his son, who, unlike Adam, didn't succumb to temptation, and so received the food which the first man ate in paradise before the fall. Here at South Shores, our pastor of visitation, Bob Vanderzag, is a wise guy. And in our staff prayer time this week, he shared something about pain that can help those of us in this room who are going through a time of pain in our life, maybe so painful that tempts you to think that God's abandoned you or that he must not be a loving God if he's walked you into this or allowed you to walk into it. And Bob said this, and I I wrote it down and I I injected it here because I thought it would be helpful. He said, when we look at the cross at Calvary and consider the love required to make that happen, we know we can trust a love like that. Jesus knew that. He knew it was coming. We know we can trust the Father. And Jesus' triumph here shows us that instead of testing God, we can trust him to walk through any trial, any trial. In this third test in verse 8, we read, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Hmm. This final challenge from the enemy offered Jesus another shortcut, but this time it wasn't a shortcut around suffering. It was more like a front-of-the-line pass that that wanted to give Jesus the glory that was to be his when he finally reigned over God's kingdom, and Satan is tempting him to bypass the torture of the cross, give up perfect love with the Father, and instead give worship to the devil in exchange. And the devil, he's making another fake promise. You can have all this splendor now. Why wait? The devil's making a promise he can't deliver on. He can't give us anything we want in the end. Jesus knows, though, that he's not going to do what the children of Israel did and worship a golden calf instead of the one true God. Jesus' plan is to succeed where they failed, so he's not buying what the enemy is selling. And as he triumphs in this third time, Jesus passes the test, and in verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 13, using it like a shield of defense and a sort of offense, saying, get away from me, Satan. Get behind me. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So what did Jesus know that you and I so often forget? It's simply this. There is no true king but God. That true life 
true glory, true satisfaction, true splendor is found in serving God over and above all things. The devil tried to offer Jesus a backroom deal on a half-off kingship, saying, get the glory deserving of a king, but don't bother with the struggle. But Jesus sticks to the truth. He sticks to the Father's plan. Now, maybe Jesus had in mind something bigger, which you and I need to imitate. Jesus kept in mind the bigger picture. Maybe he was picturing Revelation chapter 5. As we see God seated on the throne holding a scroll that needed to be opened, and it appeared that no one in the universe was worthy to open it. And no one was worthy to break the seals of the scroll. No one in heaven, not on earth, not in all Israel. There was no one worthy. And we, we read that John began to cry. He began to weep because he thought, if no one can open them, there, there's no hope for humanity. There's no hope for the church. And had Jesus taken the backroom deal on the half-off kingship, maybe that would have been the case and John's tears would have been justified. But let's read what maybe Jesus was thinking about when he saw his vision of the glory to come. Revelation chapter 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures and of their elders, and their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, The Lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped because it's all about Jesus. And there was Satan offering him a backroom deal in the back of a 7-Eleven saying, don't, father the father, don't follow the Father's plan. But Jesus kept in mind the Father's plan, which is why you and I need to keep in mind the Father's plan. Jesus obeyed when it was hard, and he was counted worthy. The children of Israel failed to be worthy. I fail to be worthy. The main takeaway from Jesus' wilderness testing isn't to give us necessarily a pattern to follow so we can do it similar, but the main thing is really about Jesus being our representative. Instead of telling us, instead of this passage telling us what we should do, it's more about Jesus giving us the good news that the good work has been done for us on our behalf. Jesus has perfectly obeyed the demands of the law. He's fulfilled the covenant. He's done what you and I couldn't do, and he's done it 
so he can offer anyone his free gift of grace. And that guy who used to kill Christians and hate Jesus and deny that he was God wrote this in Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. Well, over at Biola is the Talbot School of Theology, and a professor there named Dr. John Lundy wrote a good book called Following Jesus. And he summarized Jesus' wilderness testing in a very helpful way that we'll end with this morning. He said, For those of us beaten down by the inconsistency of our walk of discipleship, Jesus' provision of covenant faithfulness on our behalf is good news indeed. Now, for others of us who subtly slip into a reliance on our own acts of righteousness in relation to Jesus' commands, this is also good news. For all of us, the partial nature of our repentance from sin literally cries out for the wholehearted repentance that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, living it out consistently in the crucible of wilderness testing. And in each scenario, the thoughtful reception of Jesus' representative servant work offers liberation from our repeated failures to live faithfully. It's all about Jesus. He has the power to set anyone free from failure, free from sin, to make you right with God when you are currently wrong with God. We are praying that South Shores continues to be and grows more to be filled with men and women who remember the good news of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And our prayer is that this good news invigorates our church more to obey the Lord, to make him known, to serve one another for the sake of the king and his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we honor you as our king. We recognize that it all depends on you, and you did it. It's done. May we rest on your good, completed work. May we trust that you have a plan. And even when our life is not as we would have planned it, and it is filled with pain and sorrow, would we trust you like Jesus trusted you and stay faithful to you even when it hurts? knowing that you've promised us a time is coming when there will be no more sorrow, no more, no more pain, no more tears. May you fill us with joy at this good work that's been done on our behalf, and would you spur us on to love and good deeds to take this good news to other people who are still lost without it. In Jesus' name.